Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. There's a unique phenomenon that we as mothers have that fathers don't seem to have, and it's called the empty nest syndrome. And that's because we as moms do everything for our kids. We birth them, we teach them, we grow them in ways that are beneficial to them. We take them to school, we drive them to athletic events. We do everything we can for them, and all of a sudden one day, they leave. And we're left with, what's going on? What do I do with my life? And, oh, who are you? to our husbands. We look at our husbands and think, wow, where have the years gone and what has happened to our relationship? Do I even know you anymore? Am I even in love with you anymore? Or have I lost my first love? Well, that reminds me of God's words to a church, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter two, when he says to them that they have lost their first love. This week, that's what we're going to discuss so that we can better understand the kinds of people we are spiritually, as well as the direction that God would have us go. I'm Debbie Blank, welcoming you to Living Word Ministries. And I'm Jackie Sailors. And you know, when we talk about relationships and how important they are to us and how important it is to feel loved and how horrible it feels when we feel like we've been taken for granted, no matter what the relationship But it's absolutely heartbreaking when someone we love does it to us. When the regular calls, the texts, the cards, the letters start becoming less frequent and more impersonal. We start to wonder if this is the beginning of the end, and it's alarming. So something needs to happen before it's too late to restore that thing that's so precious to you. If you've ever been through a similar situation, you can probably understand on some level what Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus and to his church today. Jackie, we've both been talking about the same type of phenomenon, and it's really losing our first love. So as we discuss Revelation chapter 2 today, I encourage our listeners to turn there. Jesus wrote this wonderful book of Revelation to the seven churches of Asia. Now, we're not going to discuss the book of Revelation, and we're really not going to discuss the other churches today. But what we do need to understand is why did God write this letter to these seven churches in Asia? Because there weren't just seven churches in Asia. Asia at that time was Western Turkey. He lists seven churches there, but there were at least two more that the Bible talks about, Colossae and Hierapolis. So why does God pick these seven churches? Some people believe it's because they were on the trade route at that time. So those were the churches that would have been known the most that would have been easy for them to receive the letter that John had written because they were right there on the trade route. But I don't think God's really concerned about trade routes. So I think he had another point in mind, and it could have been one of two points. One is that these seven churches represent seven different types of churches that we can have in existence at any point during our history. You have a a church of suffering, you have a church that's in love with Jesus, you have one who's lukewarm, you have this one that's lost their first love. Those could be any of the churches in our city at any time. You could probably, if you knew enough about the churches, put these seven churches on a chart and list the names of the churches in our city underneath where they fit. You could probably do that. Only God could, but it's possible. 
The other thought process that these churches may represent church eras. In other words, Ephesus, which is the first church, would represent the apostolic era, the beginning of the church. Whereas Laodicea, which is the last of the seven churches, would represent the age that we're living in now, which is the final era of the church before Jesus returns. I tend to think that perhaps both of those explanations could be true. So we have to keep them both in mind as we're studying this book. Either way, the Church of Ephesus is the first letter that he writes. So it's got some preeminent importance for some reason. It does. And in order to understand that, too, we need to know what Ephesus was like at that time. Ephesus was one of the four largest cities in the world, including Rome, Syria, Antioch, and Alexandria in Egypt. So it was a well-known city. They say that there were probably a fourth of a million people there. It was considered the capital of Asia, even though Pergamum really was, because it was such a prominent city. It was near the seaport. It was the first major city of the trade route. So people saw that as significant. Plus, it happens to be the city where Artemis or Diana had a huge statue When you came into the port, I understand that that's what people saw. And the city was known as the city of Diana. Clearly, there was a very pagan atmosphere there. As you go through the ruins today of Ephesus, which we'll be doing very shortly, you get to see all of the temple ruins that are there. And there are many to the Roman emperors as well as to the Greek gods. So it was a city of pagan influence As a matter of fact, the city that Paul spent two and a third years in, according to the book of Acts, no other city did he spend that much time in except Ephesus because he found an attitude in this city that he really loved. And did John have a special relationship with the church at Ephesus? He did. He is considered the bishop of Ephesus. As a matter of fact, it's understood that he was exiled from Ephesus to Patmos when he was sent over there for punishment. And then he went back there. And it's also believed that the Virgin Mary was there with John, who was taking care of her, and that she died there. Now, Ephesus, I need to read you out of the book of Acts because it's so fascinating to see what kind of a city they were. Since it's a pagan city, since it's a primarily Greek city, you would expect a lot of influences that would be contrary to the gospel. And yet we know from Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 10, it says, this took place for two years that Paul lived there. So that he lived in Asia, he, they heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, and God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It goes on to say in verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And verse 19 tells us that in the city of Ephesus, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began to burn them in the sight of all. They counted up the price of these books and they totaled to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's what the city of Ephesus was like. So this church had such an impact in that pagan society. You might say that it was the world church right there. And I mean that in a positive, God-honoring way, in that it was the pillar, not only of Asia, but of the world, because those people who belonged to that church, and I say that with quotes, because it wasn't a denomination, it was a group of people, they loved Jesus. 
We know from reading the book of Acts that Paul couldn't stay in a lot of places for very long. He only stayed in Thessaloniki for three weeks. He only stayed in Berea for a very short period of time because people kicked him out. They didn't like what he was preaching. Yet here we have him living in Ephesus for two and a third years. Paul was doing a mighty work. So that gives us an idea as we begin reading this chapter that God has given to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Well, let's stop for a minute. Because in every one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, the angel to the church describes Jesus first. The first thing we learn is that Jesus holds the seven stars and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. If we go over to chapter 1, verse 20, we find out that the seven stars and the seven lampstands represent the churches. So what we learn here is that Jesus is among the churches. He's in the midst of them. He's omnipresent. He's always there. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. And I think when it talks about him holding the seven stars in his right hand, that shows the authority. He has the authority over the church. It's his, and he's caring for it. As he walks among the seven lampstands, it shows an intimate knowledge. Like you said, he's always there. He's close by. He knows exactly what's going on. If we look back to chapter 1, verse 12, it talks about Jesus in that verse and then the next verse being in the middle of the lampstand, standing in the middle of the lampstand. Now he's moving. Do you see the difference? First he's standing, kind of representing the fact that he's there with the churches. Now he's interspersed. He's moving among them. The Holy Spirit has come upon the churches and is moving mightily with his authority. So that's how Jesus have described. That's a very positive description of him as we go into the understanding of the people of Ephesus. Verse 2, God says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. So let's stop here for a minute and talk about those. I know your deeds. Well, any of us who are born again believers want to serve Jesus Christ, or we should, because Ephesians 2.10 says that we are created for good works for the Lord. It's a natural outgrowth of our relationship with Jesus Christ to want to do good things for others. These Ephesians were doing that, the church of Ephesus, and God knew their deeds, even in the midst of their toil. In other words, they are really putting every effort into the deeds they're doing, into their evangelism, into their service for the Lord. It's hard labor. It's a full-time commitment. It's everything they have they're putting into God's work. And how wonderful to know that he recognizes that as he's walking amongst them. He knows what they're doing, and he's commending them. How wonderful to hear that from him. He recognizes it's hard work. And they're doing it, and they're persevering, and they're testing, and they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing, dotting every I and crossing every T, it seems like. Every one of us loves to be appreciated. 
And oh, how great to get this letter from Jesus Christ's own hands to the angel, to John, to tell them how great they're doing. And then he says that you have perseverance. In other words, you are enduring. You are steadfast in everything you're doing. And you can't endure evil men, which makes sense, because you and I can't endure evil if we are walking with Jesus, because Jesus can't endure evil. Goes on to say, they call themselves apostles, but they're really not. You found them to be false. How can we find people to be false unless we know the truth? These Ephesians knew the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, because they had, outside of Jesus Christ, probably the greatest evangelist to teach them, and that's Paul. They knew the truth. They could stand against evil men. And they endured hardships for my name, it says. So they are doing things for him, for his name, for his reputation, even enduring hardships. And again, he's recognizing them for that. That's what he says in verse 3. You have perseverance, you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Think of the trials they must have gone through. The public pressure that must have taken place to go to the temples, to worship Diana. I wonder what happened to their businesses when they didn't. I think today of people who have stood up for traditional marriage and how they have been persecuted. You look at Dan Caffey with Chick-fil-A. You can look at Kim Davis, who said she wouldn't issue marriage licenses to gay couples because she had a personal conviction for traditional marriages. We've talked about many examples of baking cakes or not baking cakes for homosexual couples and how these people have been persecuted and sued. But they stood up. They persevered. They endured for the sake of our Lord. They didn't grow weary. So they did all these good things, all these good works for the right reasons. That's right. I wonder if we do. I wonder if we do the things that we do for the right reasons. Or do we do them because we're taught to do them? Our religion tells us to do them. Or do we do what we do because we love Jesus? And we want to do what Jesus would have us do. I hope that's our reason, because that's really the motivation that Jesus wants us to have. He doesn't want us just to do good things in order to do good things. Certainly, he doesn't want us to do good things to be seen by men. He wants us to do them because they honor him, give him glory, and draw people to Jesus Christ. When we say they did the good things, the right things for the right reasons, It certainly seemed like that to them, and as you read this commendation, you would think so. But there's a caveat. There's a fine line that it looks like perhaps they have crossed, and it's kind of a shocking statement that comes next. It really is. Now, keep in mind, when these letters are written, there's a commemoration of Jesus Christ. There's a commendation to each of the churches, or most of the churches, not all of them. And then there's a condemnation for the people of Ephesus who love the Lord. The condemnation to them was, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I want you to think about this. John wrote this in 95 AD. Paul established the church sometime between 49 and 52 AD because that's the period of the second missionary journeys that he was on. So probably about 51 AD is when Paul established this church. It's only been in existence for maybe 45 years. 
and they've already lost their first love. Once Paul and John and some of the other people were gone that had drawn them and had led them and had taught them, they just kind of fell apart. What does that say about us as Christians? It says to me that we need good leaders to lead us, and if we don't have them, then we turn our backs on God. It also tells us that we rely too much on our leaders because once they're gone, we don't have a firm foundation in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like going to church on Sunday morning and expecting our pastor to feed us and have that last us for the rest of the week. 20 to 30 minutes with the pastor preaching during the week is not enough to sustain us. We need a personal relationship with him that is personal time with him, personal study. We need to know God through his word and through prayer, not from someone else spoon feeding us. I just think about being one of the members of that body, having this letter read to them, and you're sitting there very self-satisfied because things are being checked off the list and you're looking pretty good. And then, but I have this against you. I mean, that is such a strong statement. I can just see the jaws dropping and the eyes getting big. And what is it that you're talking about here? What? You know, you can't believe your ears when he's saying this to them because they've done everything right, but they've been self-satisfied with their works. I don't know if you've ever had a blind spot called out to you. We all have our blind spots. We're just totally unaware that we're doing something that's not quite right. And sometimes someone will call that to your attention, maybe kindly, maybe not so kindly. And when you realize that they're right, it's such a shock. And so I think that's probably what happened with the Church of Ephesus. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You know, how could that be? So he tells them. He lets them know. He's calling out their blind spot. Ouch. That would really hurt. As a matter of fact, that does really hurt. Because as I read that, oftentimes, it hurts me when I realize sometimes I leave my first love. Now, I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is my everything. I can't imagine life without him. I wouldn't want life without him. But there are times when I get so busy doing what I do. Duty calls. I have to follow my duty. My church needs me. My family needs me. My ministry needs me. People need me. Things need to be done. So therefore, I have to prepare and I have to work and I do. And I ask Jesus to bless it. And I spend some time with him. But I tend to go full steam ahead because after all, Deborah means busy bee. And I'm a busy bee. That is my personality. All of a sudden, I wake up sometimes, or I read this in my devotions, and I go, oh my gosh, God, am I doing what I'm doing? If I set you aside, and am I doing what I'm doing just because it's what I'm doing? I'm used to it. I'm working with my hands. I'm fulfilling my obligations, but my heart is somewhere else. It's not that I don't love Jesus or love what I'm doing. It's just that instead of starting the day with Jesus in front of me and doing everything I do, looking through Jesus' eyes, looking at everyone through Jesus' eyes, instead of him being preeminent and in front of me, I kind of move him to the side and say, okay, bless what I'm doing. Come with me, Jesus. And that's not what he wants. When I do that, I've lost my first love. I've put him second instead of on the throne of my life. It's like you said, sometimes we do things for him, but we're doing them without him. We've forged on ahead in our own way and happily doing things for him without that relationship. That There's a Christian song called, I Miss My Time With You. 
it's so beautiful and I think it just really gets me in the heart when I hear that song because I know that I have been guilty of that. We have to keep being pulled back so that we don't get so full of ourselves that we think we're doing the right thing and we're losing our first love. It says, you know, in the next verse, consider how far you have fallen. That's another deeply cutting statement and yet it's so important for us to have that kind of a checkup and determine whether we have that relationship with him, the kind of time we're spending with him, that intimacy, that's what he's talking about here. And it's such an important thing because if we lose that, we're breaking his heart. He's the groom, we're the bride, he's gone off to prepare a place for us, and we're taking him for granted and we're forgetting and we're going on about our business. We think we're still in love, but he's not getting that intimacy, those intimate messages that we used to give to him, he's not getting. And it's also the beginning of apostasy. I mean, if you cross a line like that and you forget who you're supposed to be in love with and who loves you, you could be on the verge of a breakup. So this is really, really serious. And so he's calling them to this attention, no matter how good they are and how good they have been, this is the bottom line. That's such a good explanation of it. And you mentioned apostasy. As I look at this and I think, remember where you've fallen from. Look at our churches today. Jesus Christ used to be the preeminent aspect of our churches. Now it's social justice because we're serving with our heads and our hands rather than our hearts for Jesus. He may be the motivation. He's back there somewhere, but he's not the preeminent. We have fallen away from putting Jesus Christ first. We're taking that duty rather than that love. And so Jesus says to them, repent and do the deeds you did at first. You see, if we will repent, then we repent of our sins. We confess what we've done, where our hearts have gone, and we turn our eyes back to Jesus. He becomes preeminent in our lives. The deeds we do become based on him. You see, when we get to heaven, we will be judged on our deeds. We get to heaven because we have believed in our Lord Jesus Christ and surrendered to him. But when we get there, the judgment seat of Christ consists of God judging our deeds. I want you to know, as I think back on my life, I got a lot of good deeds, but my motivation for those deeds weren't always right. So a lot of those deeds are going to be burned up because if our motivation isn't to honor Jesus Christ, to give him the glory, to further his kingdom, then those deeds are worthless. That's why Jesus says, repent first. You can't just do the deeds again because then you're just doing works. Instead, repent, turn your heart back to me, and then do the deeds you did at first. Or else, there's a problem here if we don't. He says, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Well, the lampstand represents the church. I'm going to remove the church unless you repent. He did. There's no longer a church in Ephesus. Will he remove the church from here in the United States if we don't repent? Well, The number of people who are true Bible-believing people in our country are minuscule, percentage-wise. Even the number of people who call themselves Christians has decreased at least 10% in the last couple of decades. But those who are Bible-believing Christians, we're down to less than 9%, probably even less than 5% at this point, because we have lost our first love, and that's what Jesus said would happen if we didn't repent. But after Jesus is done telling the Ephesians all of these things about their blind spot, he comes back and he commends them again. He does. He says in verse 6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
The Nicolaitans, uh, it's hard to say who exactly they were. Some say they were the precursors to the church hierarchy that ended up being developed later on. Other people say they simply were people who were not walking with God in the proper way. We're not really 100% sure, but the point is they didn't have the heart of God. They had turned away from God. The Ephesians hated them. And why didn't he say that earlier in verse 2 when he talked about the apostles who said they are, but they're not? Why didn't he add Nicolaitans there? It's like God wanted to say, you've done great things. You've lost your first love. But remember, you've done great things. He didn't want to leave them discouraged because they were a great church and they can be again. That's the same way with you and I. We may fall. We may take Jesus out from being first in our lives, but he loves us and he knows our heart and he just wants us to come back and put him first again. And I think that does show that he wants to restore that relationship. So he wants to leave it on an up note so that they have this in common. So he's commending them again, and he's trying to get that intimacy back. And I'm thinking about the example you gave about the husband and the wife with the empty nest syndrome, and they look at each other after raising the kids, and the kids are grown and look at each other and have not very much in common anymore. What is it that they would need to do to get that intimacy back? Well, you had mentioned to me earlier, well, they'd probably go on dates. Maybe they'd do things that they did when they were courting to redevelop that relationship. They'd look out for each other's interests. They'd put each other first. Those are just some things that I think of in a relationship. Shouldn't we be doing that with Jesus too? Putting him first. Doing the things that he calls us to do, which is getting to know him. Sometimes we find it hard to read the word or to pray because we just don't feel like it or because we know we're doing something we shouldn't really be doing. But I tell you, when I get that way, when I get back into confessing my sins and with the Lord and in his word, oh, it's just like this refreshing pool that I jump in on a hot day because there's so much comfort in that. And it's so great to be knowing our God and walking with him. That's what I need to do. I hope you will do that too in reading the word and praying. And it's not just a matter of going to church on Sunday morning. It's so much more than that. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. We need to get together with a group of people who are like-minded, not just a small group of people who complain about things or who talk about their lives. I've been in many prayer groups where we spend 95% of the time talking and 5% praying. We need to be focused on Jesus in our Bible studies, in our prayer times. So I encourage you to join us on our Tuesday night Bible studies or our Thursday morning women's Bible studies. We've got a lot of great opportunities for you to connect with others where you will learn the word of God for yourself. You will meet Jesus like you never have before. Visit our website at livingwordministry.org to find out about those or find one in your church or in another area. Just get with other people and get in the word. Get to know your God. Well, I need to ask our listeners, are you willing to evaluate your life? Are you willing to do as Jackie said? Are you willing to look at your blind spots, to have Jesus shine into your life show you any areas that you've turned away from him or not necessarily in sin but in omission where you have put yourself first where you're doing things that seem right to you but you don't know if they're really honoring to God if it's really what he wants you to do have you left your first love have you awakened and realized that your spiritual children are grown so to speak 
And now you look at your Savior and you go, well, I know you're there and I love you, but, you know, I'm going to continue doing what I do and we'll just continue this relationship that we've had going rather than restoring it. I pray that each one of you would remember where you've fallen. I pray that you would repent from any areas that are not 100% God-honoring and that you will do the deeds you did at first out of complete honor and glory and love for Jesus Christ. Read the story, the book, the letter to the Ephesians and ask God to show you what you need to change in your life. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.